my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I talk about six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky seventh topic thrown in at the end. The holidays are over, so all the movies are back to being whatever I felt like watching. This is the 10th episode, which makes me feel like this is finally a real podcast. Gotta get in those double digits. I have a lot to go over as usual, and the seventh topic is super fun this episode, so away we go. Number 1, The Tingler, 1959, directed by William Castle. Warren, a doctor played by Vincent Price, believes that there is a strange force or creature that surrounds a spine that has enough power to kill someone whenever the owner is frightened. The only way to stop the entity he calls the Tingler is to scream. He meets a man named Ollie, who has a deaf and mute wife named Martha, and tells him about his findings thus far. Warren finds proof of the tingler when he scares his wife into fainting by pretending to shoot her and x-rays her spine. Martha has a visit from Warren, who gives her what we are supposed to believe is acid, which he took himself earlier to induce fear. She dies of fright after seeing some spooky stuff. Ollie brings her body to Warren, and an actual bug-looking thing is extracted from her spine. Shenanigans occur surrounding the tingler. Ollie is found out as the actual person that scared his wife to death. She wasn't given acid. The movie ends with the tingler back in Martha's body, controlling her like a puppet and moving towards a terrified Ollie. Ollie, the tingler, and the state are the killers. Not to say that more characters didn't want to be included on the killer list. Warren wanted to kill his wife Isabel. Isabel tries to kill Warren with Martha's tingler. And to uh, clear things up, the state is a killer since we start the movie off with Martha's brother being sent to the electric chair. This is my second Vincent Price movie, and in both movies, the characters he plays and his characters' wives hate each other so much that they are trying to kill each other. I hope this is something that continues throughout his movies since it is hilariously absurd. Vincent Price is so much fun to watch. So far, he seems to play the exact same character every time, but it totally works. There is a scene in this where his character takes acid because he can't be scared without the aid of the drug. Him pretending to be on acid is incredibly funny. This is one of the first films that had an LSD trip depicted in it. Warren is set up to be the bad guy in the movie. He shoots a gun at his wife using a blank which is crazy. Then after taking the acid himself, the audience is led to believe that he gives it to Martha in order to scare her to death. He uses the same type of syringe and bottle that were used for his acid trip to give Martha a shot to help her sleep. Right after she starts seeing a bunch of crazy stuff, 
like things moving on their own, a spooky corpse man, and an axe-throwing werewolf arm. But this was all Ollie's doing. Warren just shares a mutual hatred with his wife, as married folk do. There is a very long and terrible segment where the Tingler ends up in a movie theater. I know this bit was done because of Castle's Percepto gimmick, but it makes the film a lot worse when you aren't seeing it live with the gimmick. Percepto is basically Castle's idea to attach electrical buzzers to theater seats that would activate during the scenes where Vincent Price warns the audience that the Tingler is loose in the theater. Castle loved him some gimmicks. He also rigged a skeleton to fly over the audience during viewings of House on Haunted Hill and handed out glasses to let you decide if you wanted to see the ghosts in 13 Ghosts. His gimmicks are talked about in advertising classes to this day. Most of the film is in black and white, besides a scene where Martha sees a literal bloodbath. Color film was used and everything but the blood was painted grayscale, including Martha, who had makeup applied for the effect. You can see a dip in quality where the color film was spliced in due to it not being as perfected as black and white film at the time. The Tingler was made of rubber and you can spot it being dragged around by strings in multiple shots. There are a lot of scenes from the silent film Tollable David in the part of the film where the Tingler is loose in the theater. Even though I think the entire part in the theater doesn't really work, when you are watching the movie at home without the gimmick, this movie is still a fun time. Is it a good movie? Not at all, but I recommend watching it with some friends. Number 2 10 Cloverfield Lane, 2016, directed by Dan Trachtenberg. Short of it is, I think it is fun and worth a watch. It'll be better without any spoilers though, so skip to 9 minutes and 26 seconds if you're interested in checking it out spoiler free. Now back to it. A girl named Michelle ends up in a bunker after being in a car crash. She stays in the bunker with two other guys, Howard the owner and Emmett, a guy who helped build it. Throughout the movie, Michelle is trying to figure out what exactly is going on in and out of the bunker. After finding out certain details about Howard, a plan is set in motion, which ends with the body count and Michelle escaping the bunker, only to end up dealing with extraterrestrials. Howard and the aliens are the killers. When I first heard they were making another Cloverfield movie, I couldn't have cared less. Luckily, instead of making a direct sequel, it appears that Cloverfield movies are now a series of standalone science fiction movies, which I can completely get behind. I had heard a lot of buzz about this movie being great. The acting in it is incredible. John Goodman is perfect as the big, imposing creep, doomsday prepper. And Mary Elizabeth Winstead is a great modern screen queen. I really appreciated the thriller parts of the movie. Until you get to specific reveals in the film, you are never really sure if the characters are sinister or just weird. It's really cool to see so much done with such a small space. One of my biggest gripes with the movie is the writing. Michelle ends up basically being MacGyver. Seriously, this character thinks of so many ridiculous outs that the normal person would never even consider. If you were locked in a room with an injured leg and given a pair of crutches, would you think of making one into a crude shank to use as a weapon against your kidnapper? If your kidnapper was taking too long to come into the room for you to shank them, would you think of lighting something on fire and putting it in the air vent to speed up that process? Honestly, I was pretty okay with these improvisations and also Michelle making a fully functional hazmat suit out of some garbage. 
given that Howard had a book on making them. But the worst example of terrible writing is how she blows up an alien spaceship. She's outside the bunker in Howard's truck, being raised up to an alien ship's weird mouth thing by the ship's tentacles, and lo and behold, all the materials to create a Molotov cocktail literally fall into her lap. Or at least right next to it. Who leaves a full bottle of liquor in their truck when they are going to be staying in an underground bunker for an unknown amount of time? We also learn that Howard distills his own vodka earlier in the movie. Why would he have bought this when his character is one of those I-can-make-it-on-my-own types? I can only suspend my disbelief so much when it comes to an alien apocalypse setting. Also, having her blow up the alien spaceship is cool and all, but I feel it was completely necessary. A much more believable encounter where she comes out on top by just killing one alien would have been much better for the movie. They even set up that encounter. Overall, I really liked this movie besides the Molotov scene. I thought it was cool that there were two truths that Michelle finds out. She was kidnapped by Howard, and the outside world is actually dangerous. The gore in this is to a minimum, given the PG-13 rating, but what is shown is well done. The movie gets a little CGI crazy with the aliens, but I wasn't really bothered by it. I recommend checking this one out. Number 3, Slumber Party Massacre 2. 1987, directed by Deborah Brock. Courtney, Valerie's sister, is now in high school. Valerie, the girl who bested the killer in the first movie, is in a psych ward. Courtney is having weird dreams. She's also in a band. Her band goes to one of the band members' dad's condos, and Courtney invites her dream boy. Once they get to the condo, everyone is having fun, but Courtney continues to have weird dreams and starts seeing things even when she's awake. There is a leather-clad dude in her visions. The dude ends up being real and starts killing everyone. In the end, Courtney kills him with fire. Then everything might have been in her head. Courtney might be in a psych ward and the killer is still alive if he's even real. The leather-clad rocker is the killer. I think it's best to start off saying that most of this movie makes no sense. Especially the ending. You don't get any answers about whether or not the events of the film actually happen, if they are a dream, if Courtney is in a psych ward, if the driller killer even exists, where he came from, or where he learned to dance so well. The movie is an absolute mess. That being said, if you can look past nothing really making sense in the movie, I think you'll get a lot of entertainment out of it. The driller killer alone is reason enough to give this a watch. He's a dude dressed in full leather who dances and sings while spouting terrible song lyrics and one-liners during his kills. And his weapon of choice is a guitar with a giant, fully functional drill bit coming out of the top of the fretboard, which he not only kills with, but also shreds on. He is by far one of the most ridiculous killers I have ever seen. I should have counted the shots of just his feet dancing in his fancy leather boots, because there are a ton. Does he make any sense? Not at all. Maybe he's the ghost of rock and roll. In one scene, the killer pops up from the back seat of a car to kill the driver, and this was honestly the most unbelievable scene in the movie. Not because the killer couldn't have gotten into the car somehow, but I just can't believe that the killer had the self-control not to jam out or say something stupid for the amount of time he waits to jump up. He totally would have accidentally alerted the teens with a quick solo. There are some great gore and makeup effects in this one, 
One girl becomes deformed when a zit gets a little out of control in one of Courtney's visions, and the zit bursts and gets all over Courtney. It reminded me of something Sam Raimi would put in a movie. We get a ton of drill kills, obviously, and they are all pretty entertaining with lots of blood. There is a chase sequence that is actually really intense, where Courtney and another girl are running away from the driller killer on shingled rooftops, which ends with them going through buildings that are under construction. There's a great part where Courtney thinks she's being attacked by a ready-to-cook chicken. When the band gets to the condo, their first activity is drinking and eating corn dogs. If that's not the dream, I don't know what is. Sheila, the girl whose dad owns the condo, is reckless. She instigates a champagne war. Sheila, you girls are underage. You can't waste alcohol here. It's a finite resource in the condo. One thing that I found very interesting is the fact that the original director, Amy Holden Jones, wasn't attached, but another woman, Deborah Brock, was the sequel's director, and Sally Mattinson directs the third movie, which I will talk about in just a second. It's super cool to see a whole trilogy of horror, directed by different women. The acting in this movie is awful, but y'all already could have guessed that. The movie is packed full with rock music, even when it doesn't fit what's on screen. There are a ton of flaws, but given the right mood, it can be incredibly entertaining. Give this a watch if you can forget what a coherent plot is for an hour and 30 minutes. Fun fact, this is the second movie of the episode to have a literal bloodbath in it. Number 4, Slumber Party Massacre 3, 1990, directed by Sally Madison. A girl named Jackie throws a slumber party for her girlfriends. Guys start showing up, some of which are invited. One of the guys that was invited over named Ken starts killing everyone he can because of some bad childhood trauma caused by his cop uncle. After being allowed to kill way too many people, Ken is finally taken down by Jackie. Ken is the killer. After the incomprehensible fun ride that was the second movie in this series, I expected something absolutely nuts. Unfortunately, this movie turns down the killer absurdity from 11 to a 5. The killer is just a normal guy who goes off because of childhood trauma. The weirdest part about this is that the cause of the trauma was his cop uncle, yet he decides to murder a bunch of young kids that aren't affiliated with the police at all. You can see Ken's PTSD trigger when one of the girls grabs for his crotch as they're about to get it on, and maybe the movie would have made more sense if this event was what spurred all the killing, but we already have a body count at this point that seems pretty premeditated given how the first girl is killed in her car when Ken drills through her back from the back seat. Where did I see a kill like that before? Huh. Don't get me wrong, Ken's character ends up being pretty ridiculous, but he is nowhere near the level of insanity that was the leather-clad driller killer from number two. That said, besides Ken's decision to kill these kids, the movie does make a lot more sense than the second. We don't get any strange dream sequences or what-ifs regarding the plot. Maria Ford is in this. She seems to have a lot of Scream Queen credits, but her acting in this movie is so bad until she has a second one-on-one -on -one with Ken that I legitimately thought that someone else took over for her. It's like she decided she'd only actually try to act for that one scene. Compared to her, everyone else is incredible. They actually aren't though, of course. The kills are a lot more varied in this one compared to the other two movies in the series. We get some drill action as expected, but we also get death by home for sale sign, 
electrocution by plugged-in vibrator, and broken off swordfish nose used as a shank, which kept things fresh. The practical gore did its job, but nothing really wowed me. This movie also has multiple red herring characters that are very creepy and unfortunately underused. I'm honestly surprised that the oddball perv neighbor, Mr. Morgan, doesn't end up murdered at the house. The music and sound effects in this sound like off-brand Nightmare on Elm Street. This movie really could have made use of J-cuts and L-cuts. In a J-cut, the sound of the next scene precedes the picture, and in an L-cut, the picture changes but the audio continues. Thank Cameron Christopher from Vimeo for that easy explanation. Basically, in this movie, whenever people are talking to each other, as soon as someone starts talking, there was a cut to them right away. Doing that makes conversations seem a lot less fluid. Here's a quick pet warning. A cat dies off screen, I think? It's not confirmed, but we hear a cow cry. There is a sex scene in this. Wait, there is a foreplay scene in this where an atrocious rock song is playing that is basically all about doing it. I have no idea who was in charge of putting that song in the movie, but I'd like to meet them, just to see what kind of weirdo they are. There is one cool shot that stuck out to me. Two girls look under the sink for something to clean up a pizza stain on a carpet, and we get a shot of them that had the camera placed behind the chemicals. In this movie, the cops are completely worthless, as usual. One of them is so incompetent, it's infuriating. The whole movie seems pretty anti-cop though, given how terrible that one officer is and the fact that they made the child molester uncle a cop. Given that, it's strange that no cops die in the movie. It seems like Ken should be killing cops instead of co-eds. The people in the house greatly outnumber Ken, and those people are able to bash him in the head with multiple items. At any point after the head bashes, I feel the victims could have easily ganged up on him, but you know, fear or whatever. What really irked me is the fact that after Ken is blinded by some chemicals, three girls just watch their friend Maria get sexually assaulted and then murdered when they easily could have taken down Ken at any point. He didn't even have a weapon. He was completely wide open for attack. It really felt out of character since the other girls worked together to help each other out through other points throughout the movie. Allegedly, a big producer of 2 and 3, Roger Corman, had Maria's death reshot, which is why it doesn't make any sense that the friends are standing around instead of helping her. Skip this one unless you're at the bottom of the slasher movie's barrel. It's a very average slasher that could have been way better with the return of the leather-clad killer. Number 5, The Mummy, 1932, directed by Carl Freund. The mummy of Imhotep reanimates after some expeditioners open a cursed chest, and one of the men reads from the Scroll of Thoth. Ten years later, good old Imhotep is pretending to be Ardith Bey. He shows some archaeologists where to find the tomb of an ancient Egyptian princess. Once the tomb has been excavated and put in a museum, Imhotep tries to use the Scroll of Thoth to bring the princess back to life, which instead hypnotizes a girl named Helen that has Egyptian blood and looks like the princess. Helen keeps going to Imhotep, and when he tells her she needs to die to be reborn and live with him forever, she calls on Isis, who breaks the spell that gave Imhotep immortality, thus turning him into a pile of bones and also igniting the scroll of Thoth, turning it to ashes. Imhotep is the killer. 
Why does almost every Universal monster movie have a man fall for a girl he barely knows, then be given an amulet to protect him, which he inevitably takes off like a fool? Frank the dude that falls for Helen the moment he sees her is given an Isis amulet to protect him, and as soon as he foolishly takes it off, Imhotep starts killing him. I wish Frank died, but unfortunately he grabs the amulet right before death sets in completely. Boris Karloff is the mummy, which means he had mummy makeup on for a brief period of time, then had the makeup applied to a much lesser degree as he played Imhotep the Immortal. It took eight hours to get Karloff in the mummy makeup, which he then had to be in for three hours to get the shots done, with another two hours to take it all off. He's quoted as stating he found the day the most trying ordeal he ever endured. I'm not sure what I really expected, but I guess I thought there would be a lot more scenes with the actual mummy. I was sure that this was going to take place in a pyramid where the mummy would go around chasing after people. I didn't even think he would become more of a regular guy with supernatural powers and immortality. That said, I still did enjoy watching the film. I guess the idea that a man can make you have a heart attack without even being in the same room is a lot scarier than being chased by a bunch of wrapped up bones anyway. The set designs were insane, as they are in practically all of these Universal movies. The strange shots of Karloff's staring face with the lit up eyes were incredibly neat, and since I watched Dracula for the movie after this one, I see that it is a staple in both movies. I'll talk more about it during my Dracula segment, but it was very cool to see in The Mummy. This movie ended up having the second off-screen pet death of the episode. Helen takes her dog to see Imhotep, and when she comes back home, relays the info that the dog has died. Warning, I guess, even though you especially don't see or hear anything when it comes to this one. The acting is campy, like all the movies of the time, due to them being acted as if they were a stage play. I don't have a ton to say about The Mummy, because not much happens really. The flashback scenes to what happened in ancient Egypt were very cool to see because of the set pieces and costumes. This movie was a bit longer than some of the other Universal movies I've watched, and drug on just a tad. I'd say give this a watch, since it is a classic. It isn't the most enjoyable Universal movie, but it's still fun. Number 6, Dracula. 1931, directed by Todd Browning. Dracula uses his powers to weasel his way to England, where he tries to get more vampire brides, but ends up being bested by a Dr. Van Helsing. Dracula is the killer. I was going to complain about a man getting an amulet and not wearing it like they are supposed to, since a character named Renfield is given a cross to wear for his meeting with Dracula, but he actually wears it and still ends up a mad servant of the Count. This was the first big monster movie that Universal made. Bayo Lugosi is a name we all know, but I had never actually seen him act in anything before this. His Dracula is very iconic, and the vampire stereotype is heavily based on it. That said, his Dracula is incredibly hammy. I feel like that is to be expected, given the times. I didn't hate his performance, it just felt strange to see the original character that almost all modern vampires are modeled after, when you've been surrounded by vampire pop culture that's so heavily influenced by his performance. Like I said in the Mummy segment, this movie has some cool shots of Dracula's glowing eyes. It's very similar to the effect that was used to light Morticia's eyes 
and the Addams Family movies. It's a very cool effect. That being said, in some of the shots, he looks kind of menacing, while in others, he looks like he really has to poop, which is hilarious. I'm not sure why they decided to go with some of the faces they did, but I couldn't help but laugh when Dracula was trying to persuade someone with his vampire powers by intensely staring at them with what can best be described as a pooping face. I really like Dwight Fry's performance as Renfield. He starts off as a normal businessman, then goes completely bonkers after getting bit by Dracula. Edward Van Sloan, who played Van Helsing, was also great for the time. Did you know that armadillos inhabit some castles in Transylvania? They are over at Dracula's place at least. This movie has most of your usual vampire stuff. They can't be seen in mirrors, hate crosses and sunlight, sleep in coffins, turn into bats, but in this movie, vampires also take the form of wolves, which makes the whole rivalry between vampires and werewolves make a lot less sense. All the bites are done off camera, which does make things a little confusing. Basically, if someone is going towards someone's neck and the screen fades to black, you just have to count it as a bite. There are some very cool fog effects in the movie and a very fake looking giant bat that is used throughout. There is also a quick scene with the fake spider. It's kind of strange that they had armadillos on hand, but not a tarantula. At the time Dracula was made, there were heavy limitations for adding musical scores, which is why there is a lot of silence in the film. It's said the shooting of the film was very disorganized, which led to the cinematographer Carl Freund being left to take over much of the shoot. You could basically put his name as the actual director. It's a good thing that he got the credit he deserved when he got to direct The Mummy. Carl Freund was also a cinematographer on Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Lugosi was not the original actor the studio wanted to go with. They actually had a long list that he was not even on. But he was in the area and already known for his Broadway performance of Dracula. It also helped that he agreed to be in the film for basically nothing. I'd say give this a watch solely because it's a classic. It does drag in a lot of places, and the ending is very anticlimactic. It is still something that should be seen. If you really aren't feeling it, watch Black Sunday, which I would say is a loose reimagining that is much more enjoyable to watch. I'm going to try and watch Nosferatu in the near future also. Number 7. Things that scared me when I was a kid. This episode, I decided I wanted to talk about some terrifying scenes from movies that have stuck with me since I was a kid. Most of the scenes I'm going to bring up were actually in Things for Children, but I'll start with the one that I probably shouldn't have seen. I was at my babysitter's house since I was good friends with her grandson. We normally played video games and watched stuff in a room at the front of the house while the adults would spend time in the living room. They were watching a movie, so we were told to stay away from the living room since it wasn't for kids. This obviously made us want to sneak peeks. The movie they were watching was Dolls, 1987, directed by Stuart Gordon. I know, I know. If you have seen Dolls as an adult or even teenager, it is a hilarious and corny movie about dolls murdering people. Somehow all the humor was lost on me as a kid, probably since I was watching it through a glass door during a horrifying scene. What I saw was a bunch of evil dolls killing a lady. That alone is pretty spooky to a kid, but what really scared me and stuck with me was them sawing into her legs. 
I was already creeped out by dolls from seeing Slappy from Goosebumps and just knowing about Chucky, so seeing this bloody doll attack made my fear of dolls even worse. My mom also owned an old porcelain doll which was next to her bed, which definitely didn't help with that fear. My brother saw the scene too and was so terrified that he threw all his stuffed animals out of his room, which you might think is funny, but hey, it's better to be safe than sorry. The next offender was Gremlins, 1984, directed by Joe Dante. Gremlins? Yep. You might be racking your brain about which of the scenes with the slimy demons scared me, and the thing is, I actually wasn't scared of them after the scene I'm talking about. The most terrifying scene by far is the one where the science teacher, Mr. Hansen, gets killed in his classroom by the syringes. Whoa boy did that scene always scare the bejesus out of me as a kid. Not only did a little monster kill a guy, but the monster killed him with syringes. If syringes, aka shots, aren't one of a kid's biggest fears, I don't know what is. It's a dark scene and most of what happens is left to your imagination, which always makes things worse, especially for my young imaginative brain. The last dramatizing scene I'd like to bring up is from Ernest Scared Stupid, 1991, directed by John R. Cherry III. If you have seen this movie, you know exactly what part I'm talking about. If you haven't and only know Ernest from his other movies or earlier commercials, you are probably confused. How could something that goofball Jim Varney did be absolutely horrifying? Weren't those Ernest movies just silly for kids comedies? For the most part, you'd be correct. Ernest Scared Stupid, though, has legit scary-looking stuff in it. Seriously, pause this podcast and Google trolls from Ernest Scared Stupid and tell me those things aren't going to materialize in children's nightmares based on looks alone. Back to the scene I wanted to bring up in particular. A girl named Elizabeth thinks there is something under her bed, but her mom won't look under there to help calm the poor kid. The mom leaves and Elizabeth slowly begins to look under the bed. Easy setup. Obviously the monster is going to be there. But wait, the troll isn't under the bed. Her giant stuffed animal is. Phew. I was all ready to see something horrifying and it was just a stuffed animal. We then see her bring the stuffed animal into the bed and roll over, thus giving the viewer a close-up of a troll's terrifying face who is lying in the bed next to her. When I say close-up, I mean a real good face full of troll. I honestly want to say that part of the movie is one of the scariest things I have ever seen. You get lulled into a false sense of security, then sucker punched by fear. I think most modern horror movies could learn from that scene. It doesn't even use a loud jump scare sound or anything. Those were parts of movies that scared the pants off of me as a kid. To close this segment, I'll add two words I know almost all of you will instantly remember that'll flood your brain with another spooky scene. Large Marge. I hope I made some of you remember terrifying movie scenes from your childhood that you had locked away in your craniums. If I did, I would love to hear about them. As always, this podcast is brought to you on iTunes by Sticker Fridge. Shout out to those awesome peeps that make amazing videos and podcasts. Check them out on YouTube, iTunes, and their website, stickerfridge.com. Speaking of that website, if you want to be the coolest cat on the block, whenever you want to purchase anything on Amazon, go to stickerfridge.com and use the link on the homepage before your shopping spree. I heard the network gets this weird thing called money if you do. If you like this podcast, why not leave a review on iTunes? 
I'm only human, which means I crave other people's approval. The next episode should be up on January 28th. I did just get an adorable puppy named Skeletor, who might use his evil powers to try and delay that, but everything should be fine. Also, I'm going to state it here that Nosferatu will be on the next episode, since if I don't explicitly state it, I'll keep pushing it back. If you have any feedback regarding anything, let me know. Now I have to go finish digging some graves.